0: Providence St. Joseph Health is a national not for profit driven by a belief that health is a human right and is committed to innovating to improve care for all, especially the poor and vulnerable. Learn more at future.psjhealth.org.
1: What do we do? What are the ethics if I understand something about your genome that predicts that you're going to have Alzheimer's in five years? Do I tell you? Do I not? We're starting to see healthcare move beyond the four walls of the hospital.
2: Just go over to your 3D printer and print out the drug that you need.
1: In 2050,
0: I I get customized medications tailored to my molecular genetic makeup. How will the system bear these costs? What it
1: has done is it has brought the C word, cure, into the dialogue of
0: cancer. Welcome back to the Future of X a podcast from Ozzy that vaults you forward 50 years to the year 2069. Each season, we take one area of your everyday life, from food to dating, to cryptocurrency and sleep, and find out what it will look like in the decades to come. We go beyond the technological advancements and dig into how our lives are going to be changed in often exciting, sometimes frightening ways. I'm your host, Carlos Watson, Editor-in-Chief of Ozzy. Our first season, in partnership with Providence St. Joseph Health, looks into something that touches us all the future of health. On today's special bonus episode, we sit down with two leaders from the world of healthcare to hear about their visions of the future, including their biggest fears. We speak with Deborah Canales, Executive Vice President and Chief Administrative Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health, a nationwide not for profit health system worth more than $25 billion. She's a part of the majority female senior leadership team, a rarity in the healthcare sector and beyond. Deborah bravely opens up to us about her personal story of Me Too, the role of women in the future of healthcare, and a theme that just keeps coming up, the importance of humanity and a tech-focused future. But first, we speak with Rod Hawkman, the president and CEO of PSJH, Rod tells us about what the past means for the future of health and some of the ethical questions that surround the groundbreaking advances ahead. I wanted to start at the top. I still love the story about how Providence St. Joseph Health came to be, which I think a lot of people don't know. Do you mind sharing that backstory a little bit?
1: Oh, absolutely. When I'm talking to other people, the first question I have for them when they're inquiring about our organization is, can you name a company or organization that's uh, over 165 years old that is now valued at over $25 billion that was started by a group of women. And that usually gets their attention. We had a group of women that you know, came from Montreal, literally landed in Vancouver, Washington, and uh, basically started schools and hospitals that eventually populated uh, the West from Alaska all the way to California. And for Providence St. Joseph, you know, the St. Joseph sisters in a similar way landed in uh, Orange County in Eureka, California, and just uh, rolled up their sleeves and started in taking care of people. They didn't worry about whether the health care was covered or not or anything else, and they did what they needed to do. So we feel a, a sense of heritage and tradition. And the guiding concept of the health system was always to care for the m- most poor and vulnerable people in a community. Uh, and that commitment has lived for over 165 years and is still present today.
0: Rod, how did they fund it in the early days? I mean, I could imagine how daunting the challenge would be even today. But 165 years ago, women in pioneering California or women in Montreal, Canada, trying to take care of the poor and needy. How did they where did they get the money from? How did they make it work?
1: So when they were out west, they did what they call the begging tours, which was our equivalent in this modern day of fundraising. We have some great pictures of the sisters in full habit on horseback going to mining villages and Typically, they were smart enough to know when all the miners got paid. So they'd go there before they got to the bar, (laughs) make sure that they approached them and uh, got the donations. So they really just carved it out and uh, built it on donations from the miners and the settlers that were there and built it off of that.
0: Uh, Rod, that's actually a perfect transition to kind of talk a little bit about the future and where you see the future of health going if you were to help folks jump ahead 10 20 30 even 50 years what do you think are going to be some of the most interesting changes we'll see in healthcare and medicine
1: what used to happen with healthcare originally it was centered pretty much around the doctor today healthcare is more centered around the individual and the family and they want care wherever they are so care in the future is going to happen more in the home where the individual is, and it'll happen over devices. It'll happen through telehealth. It'll happen virtually as much as it does sitting in someone's office. The other thing that'll happen is, uh, I think we'll see, we, we believe that everyone deserves a health coach in their life. So they'll have all their data readily at hand and As you and I are talking uh, today, we'll be able to look at our iPhones and look at what our health status is during that day, what we did, what we ate, how it fits in, did we take our medication, kind of keeping us on track uh, virtually on a a 24-7 basis. The predictive ability to understand what types of illnesses and things we're susceptible to are going to be things that are going to be pre-programmed for us. So we can we can maintain our health instead of waiting for the next illness to hit us uh, as we come forward.
0: Rod, when you think about some of the things that don't excite you but instead maybe, frankly, scare you or worry you about the future of health, what's on that list?
1: Well, I, I think, first of all, you know, in the era that we live in, we have a lot of people necessarily making health policy that really don't understand health care. Uh, I think sometimes you have to actually ask the people that do the work to help design the system. So that's kind of scary. Uh, the second is, you know, the flow of information, uh, who controls it, where is it, is also something that I think people worry about. Their health information is probably the most sacred information they have, and in this era of Facebook and everything else, they're concerned where is their health information? So that's a, I think that's a fear for everyone, and I see part of our role as a health organization is to help protect our patients' health information and make sure it's used for the right reasons and that people have control over that information.
0: Rod, blow our minds a little bit about some of the things that are coming up ahead that you've either talked about or heard about.
1: So I, I'd say at one is uh, the dense data clouds of information about our health that once you put all of that information that comes from your genetic code, from your biome, from all of the data that's accumulated off of devices and all of those things, we can sometimes predict absolutely what's going to happen to us as we go forward. So that to me is going to be something that is going to make a tremendous difference in the predictive nature of healthcare. And that in the future, what we take for medicines are going to be medicines that are directed towards what we say an N of 1, towards each individual, so that the medicine that I might take for a disorder is going to be individualized to me, and the medicine that you might need for the same disorder will be individualized to yourself so that they're effective for each one of us.
0: Rod, the idea behind personalization is powerful, but I know that one of the flip sides of that is this notion that Vivek Murthy and others talk about in terms of loneliness. And I know you often think a lot about whole care, including mental health. Do you want to talk a little bit about where you think we can go from here? Are there big, bold opportunities, not only around physical medicine, but if you will, around our mental health as well?
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, for us, we try not to separate the two because we think mental health and physical health are inexorably uh, intertwined. Uh, there's data that, that shows that of people who have physical illness, more than 40 percent of them also have a subsequent mental or behavioral health issue going on at the same time. The things that we're concerned about, and we obviously we have a big movement around mental health because we feel it's the, uh, it's the epidemic that's out there. So as we talk about opioid addiction, we talk about depression and the suicide rate, it's reach, reaching epidemic proportions and it needs to be treated as aggressively as we would a virus or any other illness. So part of what we're trying to do is re, you know, relieve the stigma of mental illness so that we think about it the same way we think about having cancer or we think about having an infection. And then, part of what we're understanding is that so much of mental illness is uh, related to resiliency. And that, you know, when we live in a society that's isolated, it exacerbates a lot of the mental illness that we see. And we see some of the unfortunate products of that in society today.
0: Rod, I want to tackle the question of ethics in medicine because as much change and innovation is coming, it'll also raise lots of. Big ethical questions, and you put your finger on one of them, which is privacy, but that's only one of them. What are some of the other big ethical debates that you expect that we'll be having over the next 10, 20, 30 years as health and medicine evolves?
1: Well, it's going to be the issue around artificial intelligence. You know, artificial intelligence is changing the way we do healthcare, and it's now coming at an accelerated phase. And there's a whole ethics about artificial intelligence, how it's used, how do we apply it to individuals' health, but also how do we apply it to the workforce? There are some predictions just that, you know, probably as many as six or seven in in ten jobs could be affected by the use of what we call AI or artificial intelligence. So That's going to be a critical uh, uh, aspect. Uh, What do we do? What are the ethics if I understand something about your genome that predicts that you're going to have Alzheimer's in five years? Do I tell you? Do I not? Uh, What do we do with that information? It's also what are the ethics of, of how we deal with information that we find out about patients, which in general we have always felt that patients and individuals have a right to all their information. But maybe sometimes they just don't want to know about what may happen to them.
0: Rod, I'm going to finish off here with a lightning round, super quick questions. Question number one, would you want to know that you had dementia?
1: Uh, Absolutely.
0: Who's your hero?
1: Uh, My hero is my dad and mom.
0: Favorite book?
1: The Boys in the Boat.
0: And final question, if you were not running and helping to build and grow PSJH, what would you love to do?
1: What I do is I I go out in the world and uh, help uh, populations uh, that are poor and vulnerable in other ways. You know, as a lot of people have talked about, David Brooks has talked about in his book, I'm more concerned about what my eulogy is going to be than my uh, resume.
0: It's more important than ever to let lessons from the past guide us to a fairer, more thoughtful future whether it's in providing health education to the community, preventing illness, prioritizing mental health, or empowering female managers. Up next, we speak with Deborah Canales, Executive VP at Providence St. Joseph Health, about her personal journey to become a leader in the industry and her vision of the future. Stay tuned for more The Future of X health goes beyond the hospital a child can't learn if he doesn't get breakfast a mother with depression can't parent well without mental health care an elderly person can't be well without adequate nutrition no one can heal if they can't access health care this episode is brought to you by providence saint joseph health a national not-for-profit health system driven by the belief that health is a human right learn how providence saint joseph health is innovating to improve care for all and address the social factors that affect health visit future.psjhealth.org deborah Canales is responsible for human resources and community ministry at providence saint joseph health she was named a modern healthcare top 25 minority leader in 2018 and helped start the hashtag not here movement at psjh meaning zero tolerance for harassment or discrimination. It's their response to the Me Too movement. And it was Deborah's personal story that led her to speak out. It was interesting in your bio, I read that you were called to Providence. And I I love that as the grandson of uh, Baptist ministers, you sometimes see that in other settings. What has spoken to you about the work you've done?
2: You know, the the sisters, I just came back from Montreal, where we celebrated 175 year blessings of our sisters of Providence. And one of the sisters reflected, um, you know, I was called to be a sister because I want to live my life with zeal. And they define zeal as love on fire. And when I think about what really transformed my call from um, for-profit into faith-based and not-for-profit organization, um, it's exactly that expression.
0: When you think about how Providence St. Joseph Health is evolving, and you think broadly about how it needs to evolve, Talk to me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, you know, the constant challenge of, of living and serving um, during tension and constant change, and really reading the signs of times and being very deeply rooted um, beyond just the medical aspects and beyond just the bricks and mortars of a hospital, but really extending that into the communities and to really think about the impact of health and well being outside these clinical settings. Um, that really look at all of the social determinants of, of health, you know, housing and um, nutrition and education, transportation, even safety. And I think for the future we're moving in, in such a, an era of consumerism and um, digital and technology and I think if if the sisters were to call it today, they would shift our thinking from information technology to inspiration technology.
0: One of the interesting things, Deb, I know that you've weighed in on before is this notion, what will happen as the gender balance in healthcare changes? I think something like 70% of the global healthcare workforce is made up by women, but maybe less than 30% of women are in leadership positions. How do you think things would change if more women were in leadership positions over the next 50 years
2: you know I was reading a, um, a McKinsey report back in 2017 that looked at uh, top performing organizations versus bottom performing companies and the evidence is is compelling I mean five times the level of faster promotion rates for women uh, across the pipeline two times women in the c-suite or uh, as you talked about that you know percentage being less than 20% of representation but really moving that forward um, more than 80% of women as managers and 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 also men committed to to gender diversity and and creating that awareness and it's just having those voices and having a, an inclusive and diverse voice as we make decisions and and things that we may not you know consider um, I mean, one could be as, as we look at our focus on, on parents of our, uh, that are our caregivers today and how do we develop services that help our working parents. And so when we have different perspectives, those things really help to shape what do we have to do different in, in our work environment um, to help our caregivers thrive and, and be able to follow their calling.
0: Talk to me a little bit about the Me Too movement. I I think, as I understand it, within uh, PSJH, you helped start something called Hashtag Not Here as kind of a response to the Me Too movement. Tell me more about that. What was that about and what were you hoping would come out of that?
2: You know, it's paying homage to the founding sisters that said we take care of every caregiver. And so that's why we say not here, because we don't tolerate harassment or abuse of any kind. Part of that is then how do you you integrate that into all of our systems and and policies so that uh, people can respond uh, when they have issues anonymously or to their supervisor or to anyone.
0: And, and Deb, have you had personal experience uh, with Me Too moments?
2: Yeah, so, um, you know, I um, was married right after college and... um, started to recognize uh, some things that were very different after getting married and, um, you know, being of Catholic faith and, um, you know, really committed to my marriage, um, really thought I could work things out and did not complain, did not engage in others. And um, the marriage continued to get uh, more abusive, both um, verbally and physically. And, And it really wasn't safe as I was in um, some pretty significant Fortune companies, um, where I had to to really perform, and that having um, an issue and with my marriage was um, was going to hold me back, and so um, you know really did everything to try to work things through, and did not confide in anyone, including my my parents. And so when I moved into um, faith-based health care, I, I spent some time talking with a nun and I shared with her confidentially my story. And, um, and she said, you know, God would not want anyone to, to live in a life that you're living and that, um, it's okay to make whatever decisions you decide. And so for about a year, um, I called them my angel squad and I engaged about, uh, Six women who um, really had had similar experiences and helped to pay it forward to me and helped me escape. And I literally had to escape um, out of my marriage and, um, you know, filed the the divorce. I had a personal protection order in place, Um, I had um, security. Um, It was very scary. And you know, successfully got out of the marriage. And, um, you know, unfortunately, my, my ex died a, a year after. And uh, and through those lessons, it's, um, you know, the, the gift that God has given me is as part of um, a different life and wanting to, to help pay that to other women who, um, you know, are maybe experiencing some of the same things I've experienced and to let them know that it's Um, it's safe to confide in others and that there is a way out and um, and just to have those conversations and I um, I feel that that's part of my calling now is is telling my story um, getting it out there and uh, and helping to inspire and to give strength and to give courage as part of my voice um, to all so um you know, it's it's still kind of tender for me even talking about it today um, and how much um, the work that I'm doing um, to help um, you know, create that freedom. Uh, if I can help change and, and shift the thinking of, of one woman, then I know um, I've made a difference.
0: What could someone have gone back in time and said to you even earlier that would have helped move you because I I'm, I'm I really relate to what you're saying. I uh, was with a family member recently who, like you, was in a high-performing situation, um, wasn't really able to confide about a difficult marriage, um, uh, for a variety of reasons, and uh, I you know I was surprised later on and and wondered what if anything I or others should have seen, could have done, could have said that could have led to more open communication sooner. So to, so as you look back, and, and maybe the answer is nothing, is there anything that, that someone could have done or that um, somehow someone could have been helpful to you in, uh, uh, in the course of that, that marriage?
2: Yes, thank you. It's a great question. I, I think the, the biggest off-ha for me was just asking for help and that's just not part of the DNA that uh, is part of that high performer, or the person I was, you know, 20 years ago. And I think as as leaders, um, how do we recognize that in our own people? And what I try to do whenever I'm conducting my one-on-ones with my team is always asking at the end of my conversation, "Is how can I support you?" And and many times my uh, my team will say, oh, there's nothing, I don't need any help. And it's, and I keep asking the question two, three, even four times until I get an answer. And sometimes that will help break through um, maybe some of that tentativeness or fear um, and to, to really then engage in a deeper conversation of, of what's going on.
0: And you are so clearly driven by your faith, by your spirituality. Yeah. I deeply appreciate that. Um what about for folks who religion and spirituality is not part of how they see the world how do you think they can hear the urgency for improvements in the health space how would you communicate to someone for whom the spiritual and the faith-based piece is not really a part of the conversation
2: it's it's well-being and so how can we be our best selves? How do we bring our best selves um, to anything? Um, you know, as we look to, to how we influence um, having access, having the water, f- having nutrition, um, having housing um, as part of being able to thrive.
0: How would you change healthcare day one? What would be the first thing you would do if you really had that kind of broad-reaching power and impact?
2: you know, just the simple focus on, you know, the basics, going back to the social determinants of, of health and, you know, housing, water, food, and just, you know, how do we enable all of our, you know, various constituencies to just really hold up on just the basics and to, you know, help each of our communities you know, just be able to thrive, to to have those elements every day.
0: Um. Finally, talk to me a little bit uh, about your heroes. Uh, um, who do you admire? Who stands out for you?
2: Probably the first one is Mother Teresa. You know, I, I think about um, just her voice and, you know, she really wasn't afraid to to put it out there and to challenge and and not get easily pushed aside but but rather stand firm for her convictions because she know she knew what was needed and she was quick to find solutions to the whole in a a very creative way and it just goes back to our sisters and just their steadfast commitment and and maybe you know they received an answer of no but they kept going back and you know, until they they got what they needed, and I think that's the uh, what inspires me when thing, the going gets tough, and just you know, continuing to think creatively of um, okay, what are other alternatives, and what would the sisters have done if they were in this situation? And you know, the sister said, you know, let me use the metaphor of Janis Joplin. You know, look at her and how she performed. She goes, that is love on fire, and. You know, I I want to carry that same spirit in terms of of how we extend our our mission to, to everyone we serve every day.
0: Whether it's love on fire or robots at our doorstep, it's clear that the future of health is full of wonder and fear and a lot in between. Ethical questions are already being asked about how healthcare companies can avoid the issues that big tech has faced. Terms like genetic discrimination, transhumanism, and maybe even good death will slowly become mainstream. And therein lies the ultimate question. If you could see what your life or death was going to look like in 50 years, good or bad, would you want to? What do you think will be the biggest disruption to health in the decades to come? Send us a note at future at ozzy.com, that's future at ozy.com, or tag us on your socials at hashtag future of X. And here are the credits brought to you from the year 2069. The Future of X is produced by Ozzy in partnership with Providence St. Joseph Health. Leah Rose, future digital tattoo artist, is our producer. Molly Fosco, future transhuman athlete, and Sean Braswell, future super speed reader, are the editorial producers. The show was edited and mixed by Chris Kim, future gene editor. Rob Kulos, future body farmer, is our executive producer. Tracy Moran, future loneliness scientist, is our deputy editor. And Faye Schlesinger, future sleep-free superhuman, serves as managing editor. I'm Carlos Watson, future Tom Brady, once I get my bionic legs on. For more on The Future of X, go to ozzy.com slash future. That's O-Z-Y dot com slash future. And look out for season two of The Future of X coming soon.